right, Shay Gannon, coming up on today's show, we'll get an update from the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo as Mayor Don Scott joins us to talk about the COVID crisis underway there. Low orbit around Earth is getting really, really crowded. And we'll get an update on the sexual misconduct in the Canadian military and what's being done about it. The Defence Minister held a press conference this morning. We'll get an update from Global News. All right, let's get an update on the situation now in the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. We know the entire province of Alberta is dealing with the pressures of this third wave, but some regions of the province are in far more dire situations than others. Uh, Banff and Fort McMurray, the two locations where things seem to be in a in a pretty desperate situation, as a matter of fact. So let's find out exactly what is going on. We're going to chat with Don Scott, who is mayor of the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. He joins us now. Uh, mayor Scott, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, of course, we all know Sunday a state of emergency was declared. We're a few days out from that now. How are things? Just give us an update on the situation right now uh, in Wood Buffalo. You know, we're still the highest per capita in Alberta, which is a serious position to be in. So we're not trending in the right direction. And uh, the number yesterday was down, but uh, by down, we, were, uh, we had 100 cases. So that's still significant. So we're, we're having uh, tremendous numbers up here, and the tra- trajectory has not been going well. Um, so we know that uh, community spread, obviously, is a major, major problem, but how does it impact the healthcare system right now? What is that situation like right now in Wood Buffalo? There was a report on the weekend that our healthcare center was under stress. So I've spoken to the people that run the hospital, the gentleman that runs it, and he says that... Uh, they were uh, having some challenges, and they have an arrangement with Edmonton that when they hit capacity, and we do have nine ICU beds, uh, and then that, the arrangement is that they share, uh, uh, they get assistance from Edmonton, so they're able to transfer patients down to Edmonton when needed, which is not ideal. We obviously want to look after the patients uh, from our region in our region whenever possible. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Um, in, in, with the state of emergency, were you able to do anything on your own as a region to, um, you know, increase restrictions or or make any other changes to try and stem the tide? No. Uh, what we've been saying and what we think will make the biggest difference is vaccines. Uh, yeah. We have been saying that, uh, and it's, uh, it's fairly evident that every bit of information we've had from other levels of government is that vaccines are going to be the root out of this pandemic, and that's what we're uh, what we're looking for, and that's what was uh, announced yesterday. And we're certainly grateful to the Premier and Minister Shandor. He called me a, shortly before the announcement, and it, uh, I sense that that's uh, going to make a difference in the region. The only problem is it's obviously going to take a, a period of time for that to get going, and the vaccines start arriving on Monday, I understand. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the report that we're getting. The Johnson & Johnson vaccines arrive on Monday, and then they will be dispersed to you and to Banff. Um, just how big of a difference? I mean, every day matters, right, Mayor? I mean, uh, time is of the essence here. You need to get this done sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a while coming, and we've been asking for this, and I'm glad that there's been recognition by the province, but we just want to keep people healthy. You know, we're obviously uh, critical to Canada's economy and the Alberta economy, and the key to having a successful economy is getting through this pandemic and making sure our residents are healthy. You know, you make a really good point in terms of the economic impact and and just the fact that the way that that municipality works, it's it's very unique, right? Because you you have Fort McMurray, the city, proper and the people who live there but you also have the large population of workers who come in and out and are in camp life and all those sorts of things how has that complicated things 
you know, it does make it for a complicated uh, region. We and we also have one of the youngest populations in Canada. Right. So uh, the average age in the region is 32.7. And uh, when you have vaccination programs that target those who are over the age of 40, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of your uh, population is below the age of 40, then that creates a difficulty. And I think that's part of the reason why we're in the situation we're in. But nevertheless, uh, the uh, premier's lowering that age to 30. Mm-hmm. So we see that as a positive step. And in terms of size, we're, the, we're slightly bigger than Nova Scotia. And we have one major health center uh, in Fort McMurray that covers that entire region. So that'll give you a sense of that. And we have obviously a lot of camps uh, north of our region. Uh, by the last count, they were a substantial number. They're obviously uh, reduced since the economic downturn. Yeah. But I got to say that OSCA, uh, which is the Oil Sands Community Alliance, Suncor, and Syncrude have both worked uh, well with the municipality, giving us the information they can. And they have imposed restrictions on their employees and have been uh, pretty. Uh, pretty focused on safety and they obviously don't want to see their work sites impacted so everyone's got to focus on safety so we've never understood what's driving this right. uh, this increase in numbers yeah it's just you're right because i mean we we've, we've talked to the oil sands operators and obviously it's it's in their best interest to make sure everybody stays healthy and stays safe um and complicating this further you've got you've got the camps you've got the community and you also have a lot of first nations uh, in the municipality as well um and we know that they're facing their own specific issues too you're working hand in hand with um native leaders as well right that's true they uh they came to us on sunday evening and they lobbied and certainly thought that us calling a state of emergency and taking those steps was an important one and they have a strong historical memory of the spanish flu right. uh, and just to remind all your listeners the spanish flu devastated the indigenous community in this region a hundred years ago so that obviously is something that uh, the indigenous population remembers remembers well uh by stories and others and you know they they are taking this very seriously and they've been uh, they've been at the forefront of advocating to the provincial government directly uh for even harsher measures than what have been announced so we'll uh i'm not sure where the government's going to go with this the provincial government but we're uh, we're certainly glad that they've taken this first step with vaccines. Yeah, um, are are you optimistic now? I mean, obviously that is a, a huge, huge lifeline. Does it come soon enough? And are you feeling positive that this will rectify itself before things get into an even worse situation? You know, we've never seen the modeling in our region, but uh, and I think the people of our region probably would be grateful to have that kind of information. Yeah. But the steps that have been taken are a step in the right direction. And, uh, you know, once again, I, I'm deeply appreciative to... Premier Kenny and Minister Shandro and the Indigenous community for all their efforts, uh, but you know we'll uh, we'll see where things go. Uh, we're keeping a very close eye on it. Yeah, uh, and that's we, really all you really, can do at this point. We really need people to take this seriously, and that's one of the reasons that the soul was put in place, the uh, state of local emergency. It's a real signal that hey, this is a very serious situation, and we're going to uh, be keeping a very close eye on this. Uh, Mayor Scott, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. That is Don Scott, who is mayor of the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. (music) 
I love all things space, and I love talking about it because it's so it's so mind blowing, really. If you think about what's going on and the people that are doing things, it's 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 hard to wrap your head around. What we're going to talk about here is the fact that Earth's orbit is getting really really crowded. There's a lot of stuff up there, and uh, it's starting to have an impact on the way you know satellites work and space missions work and all that sort of stuff. I, I'm I'm not going to profess to know all the details because it's it's way beyond. Uh, my brain range, so to speak. But we have a guest joining us who uh, is actually working on this right now. We're going to be joined now by Dr. Siamak Sar, who is an aerospace engineer who previously supported multiple NASA missions before co-founding Kahan Space. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it this morning. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, this is fun. Yeah, it, it, it is fun. It's really, really interesting to me. Um, first of all, just give us an idea of what's going on in Earth's orbit right now. How much stuff is up there? Yeah, a really good question. And the, the correct answer is that we really don't know, because uh, <laughs> there are estimates, obviously, right? Uh, there has been collisions in the past. The most famous of them is the Iridium-Cosmos collision in 2009 uh, that is estimated to have released uh, under order of 3,500 pieces of debris objects. But uh, the latest uh, uh, estimate uh, is on the order of million pieces of debris objects, small and big, uh, that are orbiting around the Earth right now. And I imagine there's more and more all the time, and the, you know, the frequency that things are being put into space is only going up, so this is going to be a huge number very soon. Absolutely. So, so just to give you uh, put this thing in a context. So, since the uh, basically the dawn of the space age, you know, since we started putting uh, uh, satellites in orbit uh, until today, uh, humanity as a whole, we have put on the order of uh, close to eight thousand uh, satellites in orbit, and uh, a lot of them have uh, deorbited or decommissioned. So, right now, we have on the order of you know two thousand uh, or so operational satellites. Uh, however, as you know, uh, you know uh, companies like SpaceX, uh, mm-hmm. they are planning to launch thousands of uh, you know mega constellations. They are called, uh, which uh, you know is, uh, each one is gonna uh, include in the order of like thirty, forty thousand uh, pieces of uh, satellite. So one company alone is going to launch five times more satellites than we have uh, sent uh, to orbit uh, since uh, you know since the start of the space age. So. So there's a really exponential growth, uh, which is uh, not great, uh, yeah. uh, to be honest, uh, if we are not able to keep get the problem under control. It's it's kind of mind-boggling. I mean, are there agencies right now that are tracking this? Is there like an air traffic control for Earth's low orbit? So uh, I wouldn't call them uh, air traffic control, uh, but I would call them, uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, space... Uh, uh, traffic tracking okay. uh, rather than control uh, because, uh, you know, there's really no, uh, say, international body that has enough, uh, you know, authority to basically uh, regulate space right now, unfortunately. And that is really, the, to me, uh, you know, the, the, base, uh, the fundamental problem. Uh, but to answer your question, yes, I mean, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Air Force uh, is one of the agencies uh, that are uh, managing what's called the Space Surveillance Network, uh, which is a, a worldwide network of radars and telescopes that they track objects in orbit, and they catalog. They keep a catalog of these objects. The problem is that they are not able to see things smaller than 10 centimeters in diameter. So 
there are a lot of, uh, you know, right now we are able to track on the order of, um, you know, 25,000 objects. Uh, but uh, as I said in the earlier, there's an estimated 1 million pieces of debris objects. So we are not seeing, we basically we are only seeing a tip of the iceberg. So. Um, now, just explain to us how, how dangerous that is. I mean, I would think these kinds of, um, you know, pieces of whatever it is floating around up there, a collision in space would be catastrophic to any kind of mission, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So uh, one thing I'd like to, again, I like to use analogies for things that are in space because, you know, it's not really tangible for yeah. everyone. So uh, uh, just think about it. I mean, when people think of, uh, you know, satellites, uh, a lot of people think of things floating, you know, nice and casually in the space, which is not true because uh, orbital velocity, so objects in orbit, they travel uh, 10 times faster than the speed of a bullet. Uh, so just uh, imagine that, right? So mm-hmm. imagine an object traveling 10 times faster than the speed of a bullet hitting another object. It'll basically... It's gonna. It's, it will be a catastrophic event, and that these type of event has happened before, and it essentially, uh, you know, results in explosion. And uh, you know, especially if you hit a operational satellite that has fuel on board uh, for propulsion purposes, it will uh, most certainly cause explosion and uh, it, you know, the uh, uh, disbursement of many more pieces of debris objects. So there's no agency that regulates who can put things up there and where to put them or anything like that? It's basically the Wild West? Anybody can do what they want? Uh, so I wouldn't, uh, So there are some regulations in terms of who can launch where, right? So the FCC regulates, and you need to get permission uh, from the FCC to... Uh, uh, to uh, and, and that's only, uh, I guess, in the U.S., right? So. Yeah. Uh, to, to be able to launch uh, in a certain time and certain orbital regime. Uh, but yeah, in, when it comes to the international cooperation, uh, uh, you know, really as a, as a humanity, we are getting a, a B minus or a F in terms of uh, cooperating in, in this area because, uh, you know, uh, uh, say, uh, you know, China, if you, they want to uh, launch a, a satellite into space, uh, they're not going to coordinate with the U.S., right? And sure, yeah, they're just going to do so, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of cooperation. Not a, co- a lot of cooperation, not a lot of regulation at the uh, the government level, which means private industry is stepping up to try and, you know, fill this gap, which brings us to Can Space, which you are the co-founder of. You're actually working on a lot of advanced systems that can can help people in this field and make it a little bit safer for them. Just tell us about some of the work that you're doing to try and handle this problem with all the junk in low orbit. Absolutely. So uh, we, are, uh, we are a software analytics uh, platform. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we build uh, uh, advanced uh, astrodynamics capabilities uh, that uh, you know, uh, allows for uh, the higher accuracy prediction of the object. Yeah. Uh, uh, so as I said earlier in my uh, comments that you know, uh, when we track objects, it's all probabilistic. You know, we don't, we never know exactly where these objects are and knowing that how fast they travel, right? So we have some sort of estimate and some uncertainty. So uh, uh, we, uh, uh, the algorithms that we uh, have developed, uh, uh, you know, we uh, propagate these objects into the future uh, with better accuracy. And the idea really is to be able to automate uh, the uh, the whole, uh, you know, the the process of detection, analysis, and avoidance process. Uh, 
because, uh, and we have talked to uh, satellite operators, many of them, and they realize and they have told us that, uh, uh, um, let me step back a little bit. Uh, so right now, the very the, a satellite operator performs collision assessment and avoidance. Individually. Mainly manual, uh, individually and mainly manual process. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, they, they get an alert, they do analyses, uh, and uh, it takes hours. And I should know because I have done the very same uh, <laughs> functionality for NASA before. Uh, so it's a very time-consuming and intensive process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and we know that when uh, all these objects go to space, uh, we talked about nerve constellations and the increased number of congestion, uh, the uh, amount of congestion and the collision alerts, uh, we are not going to be able to keep up with this expansion if we continue doing business as usual. So our goal at KM Space is to automate that entire process, and we have had cases that we have had close calls, close uh, you know collision events uh, that uh, fortunately did not happen, but because of human errors uh, that in the last minute someone else uh, you know performed the maneuver. Uh, we know that human error is a big factor in this uh, process, and we want to eliminate that. Are you getting government buy-in? I mean, this is something that you're doing, but uh, I imagine this would be something appealing to you know various different governments and perhaps some sort of a world body if we ever get one. I mean, would you like to see it rise to that level? Is that needed? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so we are, uh, yeah, absolutely. We we, uh, we work with the, uh, uh, you know, we are very appreciative of the U.S. Air Force's uh, support. We get Actually, our main source of data is from the U.S. Air Force, the space surveillance network that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have also had discussions with the Department of Commerce, uh, uh, who uh, are building some uh, a platform to uh, start uh, uh, trying to regulate uh, this process or uh, problem at some level. Uh, but uh, yeah, and we we have uh, uh, we are working on the, uh, the couple of projects with the with the Air Force uh, uh, to. Uh, bring uh, some level of advanced uh, algorithms and technologies uh, to this field to, uh, in terms of uh, trying to make it, uh, uh, you know, a, a better uh, quantification of the problem and uh, more automation. Uh, so, so that's the goal. Yeah, exactly. And what a what a task it is. Uh, pretty amazing. Thank you so much for giving us some insight onto what's going on up there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thanks for your time and your interest and uh, uh, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Siamak yeah. Hassar, who is an aerospace engineer, previously supported multiple NASA missions, and then went on to found uh, Kahan Space. Keeping an eye on what's uh, developing in Ottawa this morning with the defense minister holding a press conference to deal with the ongoing issue around sexual misconduct in Canada's military. And uh, they're dealing primarily with the misconduct itself, but there are still a lot of questions surrounding who knew what and when they knew it and how they dealt with it. And that will come down the road, I think. Just to go over what they dealt with so far this morning, we have the um, defense minister have a press conference to discuss what's going on. Uh, We're going to check in now and get uh, the latest info on this from Amanda Connolly, who is a global reporter who's been covering this for us. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's just break it down. It started with an apology, right? With the Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan saying he is truly sorry for the people that feel he's let them down, correct? 
Correct. And yeah, I will say off the bat here, this this is the first time that we have heard these words from the defense minister. He has been pushed over the last couple of months here as to why uh, no one really has seemed to take responsibility within the government for these allegations and the handling of them, which we know the government knew about dating back to 2018. Mm -hmm. What we're hearing, though, right now today is more details about this promised independent review. We've been hearing promises about this for nearly three months now since Global News first broke allegations of high level sexual misconduct in the military on February 2nd. Uh, this this press conference today really is laying out the kind of groundwork for that, including an independent uh, external review led by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour, as well as some interim steps that he says the military is going to be taking in the meantime until that, that review can actually be done. Okay, so details around this review. What are they promising uh, will make this one different from the other reviews that have been done? Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. And again, that's that's always the big question when you talk about reviews, yeah. right, is, is how will this actually be any different? We did see a, a substantial landmark review in 2015 into this issue. What we're hearing right now is that I think I think it's twofold. Um, we're hearing that this review will be looking again, not just at um, the the whether there is sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. Of course, we know that, right? That is an established fact right now. This review really will be focused on laying out the recommendations for how to actually build an independent reporting structure for the members who want to report sexual misconduct. That has been a key recommendation, even going back to the report in 2015, that simply was not acted on. So that will be the, the kind of key thing here. We know as well that this report, this review, pardon me, is also being tasked to report back almost in, I won't say real time, but to share recommendations as they are making them and as they are learning through the process so that DND and, and the military can actually start to implement some of that uh, through the way here. I will say as well, one other thing that I, I, I think is gonna be, could be different here is the culture and the context of this conversation. I was here in Ottawa covering the report that came back that came out in 2015. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the time, you were several months out from having a chief of the defense staff who was saying that men were biologically wired to do these kinds of things. Now, of course, it's you know you can't imagine anyone saying that kind of thing and thinking that that would be okay. Um, we're looking at a very different culture, a very different set of expectations, both from the government and from the public themselves, as to how this will be handled and the seriousness with which it will be treated. Uh, Amanda, if you can touch on the other aspect to this story, which is uh, how far it reaches into the Prime Minister's office, and more reporting from Global News on that front this week. Uh, the Conservatives this morning calling for Katie Telford to testify, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, and, and just explain, she, she acknowledged that she knew about it, but the Prime Minister didn't? I mean, break that down for us. Yeah, this has again been part of that that ongoing question about who knew what when here, yeah. and and this these these concerns and these questions go back to that 2018 allegation, which uh, Global News has reported was brought to Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan by the then military ombudsman. Um, what what we've been hearing and what we're watching for tomorrow is this this push by conservatives and the NDP to have Trudeau's chief of staff Katie Telford come to committee and testify about what she knew in 2018 about that allegation. We know that um, the the, the Prime Minister, a senior advisor to the Prime Minister, was informed about this 2018 allegation by either Telford or her assistant that he went back to bureaucrats asking them to have an examination of this issue and has testified before committee that he was keeping Katie Telford informed about that process as it was going on. That, of course, um, really raises a lot of questions because, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, uh, there is no one higher than the Chief of Staff right. in the Prime Minister's office when it comes to political staff, right? She is the be-all and all for political staff in that office. She is a key confidant for Trudeau himself. 
And so the, the, the suggestion here and the, the, the statements that we've heard from Mr. Trudeau that he had no, no idea personally of, of these allegations have just really raised questions about whether he should have known, whether Telford should have told him and, and why, um, if she knew, why she did not. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what the uh, Conservatives are trying to find out. Okay, Amanda, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. That is Amanda Connolly, a reporter with Global News who's uh, covering this story. And uh, as we said, uh, this is far from over. Um, but the development today, let's just go through it here. And um, started off with uh, Harjit Sajan, the defense minister, apologizing um, to the people affected by sexual misconduct and by what he acknowledges has been a lack of action by the federal government. Every day, Canadian Armed Forces members across the globe risk their lives to support our allies, partners, and friends and to uphold values that Canadians hold dear, peace, freedom, and respect for the dignity of all people. But it is clear we have not lived up to our responsibility to protect members from misconduct. Over the past months, Canadians have heard from members affected by sexual trauma and sexual misconduct. They've shared their heart-wrenching accounts. To every member in the Canadian Armed Forces, to every person in the Department of National Defense who has been affected by sexual harassment and violence and felt that we were not there to support you. I'm truly sorry. So he starts with the apology and then announces that they will take some action uh, in the form of another independent review. It's not the first time this action has been taken by a Canadian government. As Amanda said, it happened in 2015. A number of recommendations came out of that review a number of those recommendations were completely ignored. And at the center of it is the independence and getting the reporting mechanism taken out of the Department of National Defense chain of command and getting it to an independent review, uh, somebody else who can look at it from the outside without the impact that it may have within the forces itself. So that is what the goal is here, and that's what the minister announced. These changes must be comprehensive. And most importantly, it must be lasting. And it must address the systemic challenges at the root of the problem. Abuses of power, discrimination, biases, harmful stereotypes. It is why Madam Louise Arbour, former Supreme Court Justice, has agreed to lead an independent external comprehensive review of her institutional policies and culture. Over the coming months, we expect Madam Arbour to provide concrete recommendations on how the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department of National Defense can set up an independent external reporting system for defense team members that meets the needs of those who have been impacted by sexual misconduct. And as I said, that recommendation was made many, many years ago and wasn't followed up on. Will it be different this time? Uh, We'll have to wait and see, I guess. And uh, there's two stories to keep Uh, in mind here. First is dealing with the misconduct, and perhaps that's the most important issue. The other one is, um, what did the Liberals know about this? What did the Prime Minister know about this? He is asking us to believe right now that his Chief of Staff knew about allegations against General Jonathan Vance in 2018. Talked to her assistant about it. Um, Didn't tell the Prime Minister about it. We know, we've heard from the military ombudsman, that he took evidence of misconduct by General Jonathan Vance to Harjit Sajan and presented it with him. And the report, when he testified, was the minister refused to even look at it, didn't even want to see it. 
let alone pass it up the chain of command and let the Prime Minister know. So who knew exactly what and when did they know it? And what did the Prime Minister know? And did senior government officials turn a blind eye to what was going on and just try and ride this out? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.